0: Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike. Building Jerusalem. My guest today is Yonatan Howitz. Yonatan is a writer and a Nazarite. Good to have you on the show, Yannatan. Thank you. Good to be here. For those who don't know, what is a Nazarite?
1: A Nazarite is the Nazarites i have always been a sect of the Hebrew people, of the Jewish people. And a Nazarite is a man who takes on a sort of, who is consecrated, who separates
0: himself unto God. So when you say separates himself unto God, uh, this is in accordance with the passages in the Bible.
1: Right, the passages from uh, from Parashat Nasso, where it's a relatively short, you know, slice of Torah, but it encompasses a lot in its few verses, and that's that's where it appears right in between the account of the uh, the woman who's being unfaithful and the blessing of the priests. Right in the middle there.
0: What's the practical elements of being a Nazarite? How does one become a Nazarite? What does it mean?
1: The practical element is thus. A person, a man or woman, of any tribe, as long as they're of the Hebrew people, can choose to take a vow. It is a vow of separation from 30 days and until several lifetimes. The uh, physical practical aspect is threefold it's a it's a single vow which encompasses three things the first being that the Nazarite may not cut the hair on his or her head and it needs to grow naturally the second is that they must abstain from wine strong drink um, vinegar made of strong drink vinegar made of wine anything that comes from the grapevine meaning raisins grapes and other Anything anything from the grapevine, basically, although the leaves are permitted, but I'm not a fan. And this third, uh, the third aspect is one that the Nazarites share with the priests, with the Kohanim, which is defilement by death, you know, or coming in contact with a dead human body. Graves, cemeteries, these are places which are off-limits to the Nazarite, much like the Kohanim.
0: And what's the purpose of this vow?
1: The purpose, there is no purpose that's stated in the verses. The verses state that there is, it's a man or a woman who takes a personal vow, and each Nazarite in history had their own reasons to do it.
0: And the vow, as you said, is to abstain from cutting your hair, drinking, uh, hard drink and the fruits of the vine and visiting the places of the dead
1: right or any, any form of
0: tum atmet, right
1: and no the uh, the second thing the drink it's not strong drink that's something that uh, it's only the vinegar of strong drink that's excluded although I personally also abstain from all alcohol I took it on at the same time ah so, but so in Nazarite, the, you could drink you know, beer right um, you could drink beer, you could drink potato, you know, vodka made from potatoes, you could drink, you know, other things that are not of the
0: vine. And so, you said yeah. this vow, these vows last 30 days to...
1: Right. There's a vow. It's one vow, and you can make it according to halakha. The Torah doesn't state this, but the halacha states that it can be from 30 days and upward. And the reason I say several lifetimes is because at some point, uh, I think it may have been Masechet Nazir in the Mishnah or the Gemara, I'm not sure, where it's said that if a person vows for a thousand years something that can't be humanly possible, it still takes effect, and he's a Nazirite until the day he dies. The reason I say several lifetimes is because it... uh, that term sort of resonates with me because i do believe that i had some sort of connection to this vow in previous you know incarnations if you will i feel like i'm continuing somebody else's journey to some extent
0: so you grew up in a in what kind of jewish home
1: i grew up in a datileumi religious orthodox but not not Haredi, not ultra orthodox as it's known though i don't believe in such in such a term but right to say, you know, for all intents and purposes. Uh, A house which my parents, to quote them almost verbatim, uh, they found their middle. And they didn't hide us away from the world, and they let us make our choices. They did have a few rules where we knew that we shouldn't, and most of us out of four brothers didn't cross, but basically it was a very open home, um, which also had a lot of, God in it, a lot of Zionism in it, a lot of a lot of goodness and righteousness in it. Though it might be, it, not, it might not be the classic halachic, you know, Orthodox home.
0: So, what was your religious experience like as a kid?
1: As a kid, I have I have memories of going to uh, going to synagogue, going to shul, and liking it. I have a few memories of not liking it. Uh, It was something that we did. There were times, and I I deal with this now with my own kids, where I thought Shabbat was boring. There are times when I wished I would have been raised or born not religious, but that was more when I was a boy. By the time I reached high school, 11th grade in particular, I started discovering my own spiritual path, and that set me aside from then. And I, and I was living at home then, so it was, uh, you know, the end of boyhood. It became a, a, right. something a personal At the end age, of that, it became, that. right. At that point, uh, 11th grade, uh, 16, 17, it already became a personal mission, you know, of mine. And how my was that own, mission own,
0: originally uh, conceived?
1: I, uh, that's a good question. Well, look, I've been talking to God my whole life. I'm not talking about from a book of prayers. I'm not talking about in a synagogue. I'm talking about literally talking to God just like I'm talking to you right now. That's something I've been doing nonstop. There wasn't a time where I stopped doing that. It was only the sort of ritual, you know, religious aspect as opposed to spiritual that was, was wavering. And I continue wavering after 11th grade, too. So it's how it started, as far as I'm concerned, up until then, it was me talking to God. But in 11th grade, I started asking myself the bigger questions of who am I, what am I doing? And this was facilitated by the fact that my mother, who was a doctor of biochemistry, a researcher, we would always speak, especially on, on, on Shabbat, when we had the time to engage in long discussions on, on the meaning of life and on the, or, the origins of life you know, her being a biochemist, surrounded by people who believe in evolution and that's it, whereas she goes, no, they're one in the same, God and evolution don't have to contradict, that's, that's the type of, if we're talking about a religious home, that's the type of home I grew up in where God and evolution go hand in hand with no trouble whatsoever.
0: With no you know? trouble whatsoever.
1: Whatsoever. I mean, if you get down to the details, there are things you could argue and debate, obviously, and that's a good thing, but generally... There's no, there's no contradiction there. That's the kind of, so, but, but at 11th grade, two things happened. First, I started two years, meaning 11th and 12th grade, of uh, what's called Machshevet Yisrael, Jewish philosophy. uh, Learning that in high school, um, a few hours a week. And the second thing that happened, as an, as an advanced course, the other advanced course that I took was history. And it so happened that the history teacher didn't have a set curriculum. She was, or maybe she did, but it coincided with what she was studying for her master's or PhD, I don't recall, but it was all about Hasidut, all about Hasidism and the rise of it uh, and its, uh, its influence on, on to this present day, really. So those two things I, uh, that I picked up, that I started to pick up, that is, and started to learn... In high school, combined with my own natural curiosity, eventually led me to uh, Rav Ashlag's Kabbalah, which is Kabbalat Ashlag. Feel free to look it up. It's very controversial. It's a very controversial form of modern-day Kabbalah, but it's where I started. I started at (laughs) Kabbalah.com. That's where I found that. And when I said, oh, wait, these guys are Ashlag, I mean, I can understand that there's probably a counter, a sister website in Hebrew. And so I used to download and print out dozens and dozens of pages. Of, I downloaded entire books, basically. Basically. And so that's where, that's where that started. You know, my, my own spiritual thing. One other thing which really, really, really had a lot to do with it is uh Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach who I got into his teachings as well around that same time. And all of that juxtaposed with what I was seeing every day in my religious school, which is a hasty, almost non-existent prayer, you know, in the morning. And people who may wear a yarmulke, but don't treat each other, you know, right, and are not good people to their fellow man, I saw that as a glaring contradiction. And that already started to push me away from religion and more into the spirit and the faith. So that's where that started.
0: Your uh, your studies in Kabbalah obviously form a big part of of your path. What when you talk about um, when you talk about people just being peremptory in prayer and sort of really like not treating each other in accordance with with what might be expected, um, wearing a yarmulke as you say and being mean to each other, like that sort of thing. Uh, implies that when you were studying the Kabbalah, it wasn't just a matter of reading texts for you. The- oh, no, certainly not. It was me
1: finding a path. By the time I got to the uh, to Kabbalah.com, I was asking questions, and because I was at the time studying Jewish philosophy and the history of Hasidism, of the Hasidut, there was a lot of Kabbal- Kabbalistic talk there. There was a lot of these are the origins. So it led me there relatively quickly, and I didn't feel that I had to go up a certain ladder in order to reach that at the end. To reach what at the end? To reach Kabbalah after many, many years of studying Shasve Poskim, that whole thing.
0: Right, because there's, there's a strong... Um, That's
1: right. There, what, used but to but be, there, there used to be a lot of that? rules. What hmm? you,
0: th- this, these rules? They used to be that they used to be. Would you do you think of them as halakhic positions or as as, like folk opinions?
1: Uh, Neither, no, neither one of those. I think that it's more since in the past that was actually true. There were certain limitations. It would be best. You know, you had to be forty, married, kids, having having um, having been through. Substantial amount of Torah Torah the oral and written Torah, before reaching the Kabbalah. But these days, that the, 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 those rules are null and void in this day and age, and have been for a few hundred years.
0: How did those rules become null and void?
1: They became null and void when, um, basically, I think, with the, with the Ari. That's when it became null and void. Where it's time. It's a time of revelation, and now everybody needs to get in on this.
0: The Ari, uh, Rabbi Zekluriah the Ari He was one of the great sages of Tzfat, yes. and uh, it's it's funny you bring him up as the starting point for this, because I have this um, uh, this, uh, this awareness of some some rule, and this this feeds back into the rules you were saying, where someone has to be over like forty and married. And have a solid base in, in all the um, basics of the Torah and Talmud and such. Right before one starts, and I I remember at some point I um, I found out that the Arizal uh, actually died at thirty eight, which like which is you know it's such a pity because two more years and you could have started studying Kabbalah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he so in a sense like that's that means not just that he like declared something different from the norm, but that he embodied something quite different from the norm. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even
1: if you don't take the shivchei ha'ari tradition as fact, there's still no, you know, you you can't deny the fact that uh, passed down through his students is a teaching which... It's very profound, obviously, that's a given, but it's profound in the sense, and this is why I say... That the change happened there, that the switch happened there. Because the, uh, the Kabbalah, Kabbalah Ta'ari, the Arizal's Kabbalah, is one which is very, it's psychologically driven. Right. In a big way. It's meant for the people of these recent few hundred years.
0: So when you say psychologically driven, to tease that apart, does that mean something like a lot of the early Kabbalah was? Uh, elaborate mythic metaphor, whereas the Ariz Kabbalah is uh, spiritual guidance, which maps very closely onto what we would think of as like, psychological interventions.
1: I don't think that the original Kabbalah was all you know celestial and um, and you know far and, and like far away. Right. I think Kabbalists have always been the masters of taking those higher things. Ideas and ideals, and and slamming them down into the into the face of the earth. You but, have a
0: you have a, a piece from the Ramusha Cadavero that right. you brought with you here today.
1: I did. Would you like me to read it?
0: Sure. Could you uh, proceed it with an, a brief explanation of what this is, the, the passage?
1: Yes. The uh, this is the opening, the first line of the book Toma Vora, the Palm Tree of Deborah, written by. I don't remember when, um, and it's a guide to how a man should conduct himself, comport himself in a way that will then help him achieve physical, mental, and spiritual stability and balance, and will help him ascend and transcend his physical form.
0: Ascend and transcend its physical form. Yeah. Could you expand on that a bit?
1: Well, by ascend, it's making the flesh more than what it is, I suppose. And by transcend, I mean uh, a kind of, you know, Kabbalistic astral projection, if you will, where what's called an aliat neshama, where the soul can leave the body and go to places where it can't go in a body while still being in a body. But, you know, throwing your voice, you know, throwing your soul. That's what I mean by that. Uh, that it allows you to make the, uh, the most of your human body. Uh, 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 a, uh, a former rabbi of mine, uh, a great Kabbalist, which I studied within Tzfat, he said that the difference between the layman, shall we say, he didn't call it that, but... And the Kabbalist is like the difference between two people, uh, you know, who are driving just an ordinary car or uh, rather uh, a race car where one of them is an ordinary driver who could drive it but not really get it to its full potential as opposed to a race car driver who knows it's every little nuance and knows exactly what to do when and can align himself with the best possible outcome because he knows the car so well that's i mean that's that's basically what he said and it's you know it's basi- it's a way the toma de Vora is a way to a, a way to behave in, in order to become a better you wow. the the best you
0: okay so you prepared a passage from the toma de Bora.
1: right uh, just the first line it is proper for man to imitate his creator and then he will conform to the secret of the supernal form resembling him in both likeness and image That's the line. And it encompasses, as far as I'm concerned, the Torah itself. Everything. Where a human being should strive to be, in a way, in the likeness of his creator. That's what all the mitzvot are for. That's what all the teachings are for. A way for you to transcend your physical flesh, your human, you know, to be more like a revelation of God walking. You know what I mean? Whoa. Because that's what that is. When it says to imitate his creator, now I don't know God, and I don't know anything about God. I don't know the first thing about God. All I know is how God reveals himself to me. That's right. all I know. And when he says to imitate his creator, I'm looking at the way God manifests in everything, in the form and in the form of the tree of life, which is precisely what the Talmud is. It's a guide to how to conduct oneself, uh, and he takes the teachings from, from the Tree of Life, the, the Ten Sfirot. That's what the book is. It's life according to the Ten Sfirot. according to the Tree of Life.
0: The Kabbalistic Tree of Life that you're re- referencing is the the flow from Keter to Marklet? Correct. So it's a, a Kabbalistic set of... Uh, how would you how would you describe
1: it? Um, I would describe it as attributes or better yet, clothing. Because clothing hides one part of you but reveals another. You know, clothing is self-expression. Clothing is you decide how much you can see, how much you can't see. Clothing can keep you warm or make you cold if you dress improperly. It's, uh, and yet, you know, if someone, uh, and yet, it's still you, underneath all of those clothes. It hides one thing and reveals another. So that's uh, yeah. That's how I would describe the tree of life, you know, as far as uh, that's concerned.
0: In form, it it looks like a sort of crystal a diamond, with uh, a circle right at the top, and then that circle leads down to c- two circles, one at the uh, top, sort of like imagine three pillars, and then it starts in the central pillar. Splits off into the right and left pillar, uh, and then rejoins, and that pattern is repeated a couple more times. What do you make of this? Um, uh, this is a particular question, I suppose. But there's a there. Are, clearly, if you if you map it out with in its maximum set, let's say, then there are 11 sefirot. Mm-hmm. But uh, what do you make of say the passage from the Sefer Yetzirah that says <laughs> exactly? 10 there are
1: always there are always 10. There are no more and no less than ten. The idea of that being something that connects the gimel rishonot keter bina with the vav ktsavot of tiferet and malchut at the end of it—that is something that you need to acquire. Um,
0: but I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. There, there are ten. Well, could you take us for a quick tour through the? Tree of life sphere by sphere, Describe in basics what they are.
1: Well this is just me rambling. Right. Ketel, Let's you know what? If we we're talking about psychology, let's let's do it with the, the psyche and the and the physical body. Ketel would embody inspiration. Or rather not inspiration, but where inspiration comes from. Do you know where inspiration comes from?
0: Do I know where inspiration? Do you know
1: where inspiration comes from? Inspiration comes from?
0: Uh, I suppose my perspective on this is Blakean, the great divine poetic beyond, the source of all consciousness. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. Can you tell us where inspiration okay. comes that's from? That's
1: precisely it. I don't know. I know that it appears. Suddenly there is inspiration. You are struck. Okay. So Keter is the thing that strikes you. Wow. The thing that's not not the actual inspiration. It's what causes it. That's ketel. Ketel means crown. A crown is not part of the human body. Crown is an external piece that we situate on top of the head. It's something that isn't part of you, but it affects you in a very big way. That's ketel. Chokhmah would be the inspiration that you feel, the conscious thought of, whoa, I just thought of this. That's chokma. Bina would be, I just thought of this, and I'm understanding it, something else, from that original thought. It's one thing leading to another. Bina is from mevin, which is understand, it's understanding.
0: These sfirat, they map onto places in the human body, right? Right. So, Chachma and Binah, do you find a similarity there a mapping? Where are they
1: located on the tree? The, what do you mean, with the front and right lobe, uh, the, uh, the left and right lobe? Yeah. Lessons. Okay. What uh, What's the question?
0: Well, I um, I guess I'm wondering about the right hemisphere, left hemisphere correspondence.
1: I don't know enough about it. Okay. But I do know that um, much like an unsung, where it would be the right and the left, you know. Right. It's. I suppose it's that kind of thing in the sense of the right controlling our left and left controlling our right
0: because ah, the haven't
1: switched it's uh, there's something there I don't know enough about it I don't know enough about the biology you know the. I don't know enough about it I know that traditionally classically Chochmai and Binah correspond with uh, with the brain with the two halves of the brain
0: okay
1: with dot, I suppose being the, what is it called the medulla oblongata right that the is it this right here on the back, I think, uh, anyway. The back of the neck? Right. I think that's uh, the, the part of the I've back always thought here. of
0: dot as the face. Hmm? I've always thought of dot as corresponding to the face.
1: Yeah, well, it could very well be. It depends how you look at it. It depends, if, if you're studying the Ali, it also depends on which part of the so Zuf. That's precisely what that is.
0: So if you, if you think of... Like, but dot, dot
1: would be, dot would be uh, regarding, dot would be, um, would be, I guess, the... Uh, the, 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 the frontal cortex, I suppose, or a, a part that evolved later. I'm not sure. Again, I don't know the biology, the anatomy, rather.
0: Okay, so this is all, this is all mapping the spheroid onto sort of modern right. neuro.
1: Dot would, would be okay. the fruit of the union of being struck by inspiration and understanding from it. It would be a kind of something that leads to physical action. That's Dot. That. Afterwards, we have chesed, which corresponds with the right hand, or, you know, arm, and gvura, which corresponds with the left, tif eret, which is the torso, netzach and hod, which are inseparable, which are two, uh, what, what would it be, calves, knees, or legs, yesod, being the uh, male penis and maybe uh with the female you know what i'm not sure what it is with the female it could it be the clitoris i don't know And hmm? and malchut being the head the tip the head of the penis with the male and again with the female i'm at a loss which is a shame that i don't know that i need to investigate Okay. The Ten Sefirot correspond with the human body. When it says that God created man in his image, it is that image, the image of the Ten Sefirot. Which is why when Rabbi Moshe Chodover and Tormot Dvora speaks of God's image and how man should be in the likeness of God, it's the Ten Sefirot that he goes to for guidance. Because one is the other. They're one in the same.
0: Right. So what does it mean to live to live in God's image, like, mapping onto these what What would that mean for just the ones that we've talked about so far?
1: I think before anything it would mean knowing your place. In other words, humility, before anything. Because when a person knows his or her place, they can align themselves, you know, and orient themselves properly to help them reach whatever goal they have in mind. A person who is aware of oneself and of their place in the world, knows also where to go or where they want to go. I'm thinking that's the immediate, you know,
0: things which, uh, humility. And does that, is that a, uh, does that correspond to a particular sphere here, or is that just a sort of general uh, approach to the tree itself?
1: Humility is, um, the origin is Ketel, if I'm not mistaken. Because humility is the, uh, is the source of all good traits and attributes. For that very reason that I mentioned. It's from Ketil. And necessarily, specifically Ketil. Which again is something that is not part of your body. It's something you accept unto you. It's a, it's a sacred symbol of authority. Regardless of whether you're religious or not. A crown has a lot of merit. And when you take on that crown of humility it leads to every other possible goodness and righteousness if you accept it in truth. How does that work? It works in the everyday with you being real with yourself and trying as much as possible to be real and honest with others. Meaning, it's not something that you attain, it's something that you strive for, but I don't think it's attainable. It's not, God's image is not attainable in its fullest, I think. We can only want to reach it. A human being can always reach new heights. It's a blessing and a curse in a way. There's no
0: end. In, in the code of i Kabbalah, I'm, I'm just fascinated by this tree of life stuff. In the code of Kabbalah, the uh, das is missing. It most certainly is not. Okay. Well, one of them are missing to get the number down to 11, to, from 11 to 10? No. No, no.
1: Nothing is missing. It's 10 and not 9, 10 and not 11. The Sfirah dot. you can call it a bridge. He calls it a machriya. Machriya meaning, um, well, a bridge, so to speak. Chochmai'n bina represent something very, uh, let's say, something very high. And there is, sometimes, it's necessary for a break, um, because bina is also the source of, of Gvurah, of judgment. But there are ten. No more, no
0: less than ten. So you count ten by just saying that Das isn't quite a Svira the same way others are? Right. Okay. Are there other answers to that question, though? Are there people who consider Dad a fully fledged <laughs> uh, Svira and then just take the take one off? It's no, right. here's the thing.
1: Svirat Hadat is the higher form of Tiferet. In other words, Dat corresponds with the Prophet Moses, Moshe, who was the father of all prophets. There were mm-hmm. prophets before him, and yet he is considered to be the father because he embodied Dat to the greatest extent. Whereas the, he is the higher form of Tiferet, he is a part of Tiferet because he's in the middle in the middle column, Kavra the da'at is the higher form of tif'eret, but the actual sfirah is tif'eret, which is why tif'eret is Yaakov, is Jacob. The higher form of that is Moshe, which is why he is the exception, right? Mi Moshe ad Moshe lo kam Moshe. Moshe was one of a kind. There wouldn't be no other. Not since and not hence. And the reason for that is? I didn't really catch that. Um... Moshe was a a once-in-a-lifetime thing and there have been other incarnations of him according to different sages. He came to accomplish a specific task which is to bridge the higher with Tiferet. He's the one who ascended to the mountain and came down with stone tablets. First ones were broken. He didn't carve them out. He carved out the second stones himself and God only wrote down the word. He had to be a a bridge that's very precise, meaning that Moshe was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Uh, he was the bridge, the great bridge. And yeah. every, between the
0: crown of Keter and the heart of
1: Right, right. I mean, to regardless of whether you believe that there was an actual fire on a mountain and a man ascended and, you know, 40 days and 40 nights uh, without drinking, without eating, and he finally, you know, uh, came down with stone tablets the Bible, the Torah as we know it, more or less, that's kind of when it happened. That's when it was, that's when it became a part of an entire people. And that only happened once. And that was it, that's that. It's kind of an elusive thing, I suppose. Um, so it's not a Sefirah, it's a higher form of Tifirat. That's why I don't count it as ten. That's why Rabbi Moshe Kodovero, if I'm not mistaken, in his book, Parades rimonim one of the first questions in that book is, how come there are 11 when it says 10? And he quotes that Mishnah from sefer Yetzirah, asking the exact same thing. And he comes to the same conclusion, that it's 10, no more, no less. And that is a higher form of Tiferet.
0: Okay. <laughs> I, um, I wanted to understand this um, way that the lowest Firaat work in the Tome devara in the Kabbalah of Ramush Kadavira. Could you explain a bit about the lower seven spherat? Um I suppose in both the, or all Kabbalistic teachings,
1: one of the roots would be the Atach Eliyahu, which is one of the introductions to the Zohar, where Elijah the prophet briefly and profoundly um, talks about the ten Svirot and how they correspond with the human body. The, uh, the lower Svivot, the Zayn Tachtonot, are more about this world. If the higher three were about the psyche and the subconscious, and about a final thought that turns into action, but before that it's all in the ether of you know, thought and imagination. We can conjure up images in our head and voices, but they're not really there, that whole thing. It's, all, it's almost metaphysical, but it goes on all the time. So it's very, very physical. That's the, thir- that's the three top ones. And the, and the seven bottom ones have a lot more to do with this world, with the physical nature of man who acts.
0: The, so the, so the top. Each, of these, each of these seven spheres, they correspond to a part of the body and also an attribute, like a character trait? Uh, yes. Yes. Could you run through them briefly and explain them? The seven? Yeah. Right. Uh,
1: chesed would be The hand that is given and the hand that brings one closer. And gvura would be the hand that pushes one away and which limits. Tiferet is one that unites both of them and is able to bring harmony. It's sort of... Imagine, you know, two hands, two, two open hands close to one another. Palms open. I suppose that's Tiferet. The culmination of many, the culmination of a lot of other sefirot which come before it. Which is why Tiferet is also called Yisrael. Um, Netzach ve'hod, the knees, are attributed to the prophets. It is said that the prophets draw their prophecy from Netzach and Hod. And why the legs? The legs carry everything, including the mind. The legs are eventually what you walk with on this earth. They carry you. And that's the prophets. They carry the people. Yesod being another culmination of the sfirot before it. Yesod is known as righteousness. Tzaddik yesod olam. The tzaddik is the pillar, uh, the foundation of the world, says Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs? Yeah, Proverbs. Um, Yesod also has to do like we said with well, with the penis with with the sex organs rather of both which is used to create life and is used to also bring about a lot of pleasure although pleasure is a part of all this philot malchut has nothing it says it, it it is said of its own malchut in the patach malchut is the mouth We differ from the animals with our language. We communicate, we evolve, we do a lot of things with language. And it's part of what makes us human, human beings, thinkers, creators, language. Um, Malchut is also the feminine, the classic feminine. The divine feminine is known as Malchut.
0: Is there a sense in which uh, the improvement of these uh, facets is supposed to happen according to the geometry of the tree?
1: I think that every person has uh, may, draws energy from different spherots but ideally you'd want to conduct yourself and you know so do, sort yourself out in a way which would like the chakras these also co- correspond with the different chakras in a way, it would facilitate the flow of energy through you, and you can take that as a really, you know, uh, uh, because all the flow of energy through you, and, and it means it, it means to to act properly as well, because this energy is your drive. If you pay attention to it, you'll be able to act accordingly. I don't the geometry of the tree. I mean, it's it's like. There's a reason for the way that it is, and there's a reason for all the different connections between the svelas. There are a lot of relationships going on there, and the world is founded on relationships. It's what human interaction is founded on. So I don't know if there's that. To different people, I think it, it takes a different shape or form of what they should do. But for instance, I, uh, I, from my personal perspective and my journey, I knew that I wanted to uh, to emulate that tree, to become that tree. You know, to be a uh, a, manif- a physical manifestation of the tree of life, of the divine attributes. And I'm still working on it, but that's the goal, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Wow. May you be blessed with much success. Thank you, all of us, inshallah. Let's move to uh, your perspectives on... I have two things I want to ask you about. The first is this: the idea of the Hebrew as opposed to the Jew, which is an idea that you've uh, flirted with me in the past. Mm-hmm. Could you expound on that briefly? Um, well, Jew is
1: derived from Judea, a place which uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Le- of Levi inhabited. Um, thousands of years ago. Um, The Jew is a term that I take issue with because it... I've always likened it to uh, scraps that are left over after a great banquet. Meaning that now, with ten tribes missing, and our land being disputed, and without a Hebrew temple in Jerusalem, Uh, And without prophets, which is crucial, the Jew is persecuted. The Jew is a problem, right? The Jewish problem, the final solution to the Jewish problem. The Jew is a very, uh, it's a term of, of exile, of destruction, where the Jews are what's left of the Hebrew people, of the Hebrew kingdom of Israel which i consider to be uh, a root the root of our people but more than that it's the root of all humanity because the the term hebrew in, in in hebrew is ivri ivri the word ivri is attributed to abraham when he wasn't even abraham he was avram avram the hebrew avram ha ivri and there are different schools of thought i suppose on on what that means, I know a few of them, but the one that really sticks with me is that to be a Hebrew man is to be an individual. To be a Hebrew man is to express yourself in a way that is before the time of Israel and Gentiles, before the time of of separation and, 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 and all kinds of what would it be, the fractioning To be a Hebrew man is to go back to your own roots. And we can do this as as Hebrew people, descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And there is... Thankfully, we still have the language. But I don't consider myself Jewish. Partly because I'm not a Jew, I'm a Levite. And second, and I don't live in Judea. And... um, and the second one is because I feel like the Hebrew man calls back to Eden, whereas the Jewish man calls back to the destruction of the second temple.:
0: In what way does the Hebrew call back to Eden?
1: Because to be a Hebrew man, where you are on one side and everyone else is on the other, which is where you know the word Evil" in Hebrew means "side, and it's said that Abraham was the first believer. Right, the, monothea, the monotheistic idea, the proponent, the, the main proponent of it in the Bible, at least in the beginning. Because he was on one side and the rest of the world was on the other. But he stuck to his guns and he went with what he believed in. And because of that, he got the call. His personal call. Each one of us has the duty to seek that out. Our path, our way, what we want. It's us against the world. You know, each 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 individual against the world, in a way. Not as adversaries, but as something you need to contend with and reason with. And if you are persistent, there will be a revelation that is specific to you. That's your specific call. That's something I think being a Hebrew facilitates. But, regardless of all that, it's just a term that has kind of been forgotten, and I love giving it that revival.
0: You talk about this uh, seeking revelation as a very practical thing, which I guess brings me to this uh, second thing I wanted to talk, ask you about, and also the, something you mentioned earlier, you said that Jew is a term that is post-prophetic in a sense. It's, it's a term that arises after the, the prophets are all done, and you said and the prophets are crucial. Could you expand on these concepts? Like what does it mean to say the prophets are crucial? Well, if we were talking
1: about Dat being a bridge between the divine and the earthly and Moshe being the father of all prophets and the prophets receiving their revelations from Netzach and Hod, the legs which carry the individual, which carry the nation, I think that the prophets are crucial because it's said in the Bavli that from the time of the destruction of the temple, There is no more prophesying, or rather, that prophecy was given to the foolish and the uh, and the young. Meaning that uh, people say that, for instance, autistic individuals have prophecy, have have prophetic abilities because of this. I don't know if I subscribe to that idea or not. The point is that the prophet is a bridge of sorts, and Moshe himself. When Joshua, his, uh, his student, his pupil, his disciple, his protege, comes to him and says that there are a couple of people in the camp, Eldad and Medad, which are, uh, which are receiving prophecy when they're not uh, at the at the place where they're not supposed to, and he says he should put them uh, behind bars and imprison them, and he says, "Don't act so righteous." Uh, you know, I wish that all of Israel were prophets. This is. Uh,
0: this is. I remember the subject of a of a Blake engraving: "Would to, would to God that all the Lord's children were prophets."
1: Right, that's that's the verse.
0: So this is, this and is this is, and idea. this is,
1: we are all meant to be prophets in the sense of being bridges and channeling God's will in the most you know earthly human way possible. The prophets were human;
0: they lived and died as human individuals. Could you give examples of people? Uh, today who would say living more prophetically?
1: Well, you, for one. (laughs) Seeking out your path. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, the prophets, it used to be that they had groups, you know, schools of fish, schools of prophets who would walk around with minstrels and who would... solve. His sign, you know, Samuel tells him, you will meet a troop of prophets and you will become one. Before he's a king, he needs to be a prophet.
0: And so this is, this is in the book of Samuel. Right. Yeah, it says Saul, I think he, he, in the author translation, it's a group of roving ecstatics.
1: Yeah, and he, uh, and he just fell in with them, and, which spawned the, uh, the phrase, Hagam Sha'ul Banavi'im, is Saul also a prophet?
0: That's what it says. When you look at... Uh, so to, to go back to the Blake idea. Yeah. I, some some An idea that I, I sort of distilled out of William Blake, and I think there, there are direct passages here and there that, that say this explicitly, but I don't remember where. Blake has this idea that um, all uh, artistic creation is in some sense prophetic, because it comes from the great uh, beyond and moves through, do you see uh, musicians as particularly living in accordance with uh, these prophetic ways? Uh, no, not, not, not
1: really. I know that some music touches me personally, of course, but, and I have had music which is, which has been and still is part of my spiritual growth, but no. No, I don't think it's prophetic, necessarily. Because if you're talking about prophecy as receiving messages and inspiration and then manifesting that with physical tools and means, then I suppose that is. But when I say prophet, I mean... I mean more someone who shall we say, embodies the tree of life and is willing to take on that rough, rough job, and it always is, of being a bridge to the people until they don't need a bridge anymore. Because having a bridge between the divine and you know mankind is not a default. The default was when we were created, when there was no barrier, before we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was just God in us, and there was no barrier, and there were no intermediates, no... And that's what I consider to be... I mean, we are meant to go back to that place, to, to Eden. That's what all of this is about, this whole trip that we call life, you know. It's all about going back to Eden.
0: So before this, the eating of the fruit, there was, no, there was no separation, therefore no call for prophecy...
1: Right, it was just there. It's said that the uh, the angels, the archa- the, the archangels, uh, looked at Adam and looked at Adam and looked at the sun, and they couldn't tell the difference.
0: Oh, well, yeah. What do you make of readings of uh, the fall from Eden as mapping onto the adoption in? Um, as various, like, historical things which roughly map onto, the, say, the adoption of agriculture or the beginning of, of self-consciousness in the species. Well,
1: B'lashit, Genesis, is my favorite book and probably my favorite Torah portion because everything is in there. That's how I see it. Everything is in there, all of human interaction with oneself and with God and with the land, How it all, uh, how it corresponds, I'm not sure. But I do think that it's all there in a way. Uh, Like I said, God and evolution go hand in hand as far as I'm concerned, and that's precisely because of that. It goes, uh, it corresponds in the sense of it being a process and an ongoing process at that which we are still in the middle of. That's why I said we need to go back to Eden. We are still in the middle of a process which we started back there. And we need to complete this and go back there.
0: What what, what would it mean to go back to Eden?
1: Um, Regardless of whether you consider Eden to be a physical place or not, it's a place where humans originated in the divine form. And it's a place where there is no separation. It's a place where we are able to eat from the tree of life. Which was also back there, but has since been put under guard. There were guards that were placed in front of uh, the path of the tree of life. That's what it says in Genesis. Which is interesting, because the only fruit that was forbidden was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The fruit of the tree of life was never forbidden.
0: Yet it was not eaten from.
1: But it was not eaten from. That's the whole point. We We were meant to, sort of, says that man was created on Friday. And we were meant to go into that first Shabbat and complete a whole, complete the circle of creation, shall we say, for lack of a better, you know, term. But there was the Fall from Eden that happened on Friday afternoon. And that entire time between Friday afternoon and sundown was stretched into these thousands and thousands of years that we know of, you know, as being classic modern human, uh, you know, the Bible, right, 6,000 years. So when I say go back to Eden, I mean go back to a time where there won't be any need for separation and good and evil won't exist And we will be able to partake of the tree of life as we were meant to in the beginning. Practically, I don't know what it means, because I'm not there. But I know that the Torah was given as an instruction book, amongst other things, of you need to get back to Eden. Here is how you do it. Or rather, in a lot of ways, it's here's what not to do.
0: (laughs) Where do you get this idea that it was given as an instruction book for going back to Eden? because it's layered. After the, after the fall, after the
1: expulsion from Eden, there is uh, ten generations where at the end of it there's the flood. And there are... the the different stories there. There are only a few verses here, a few verses there for each, but they, 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 they encompass so much I wouldn't even begin to unravel everything now. Because I wouldn't stop talking. But essentially, it's the history of mankind and it's the history of me, of Jonathan. I see my own history in uh, in Genesis, in the story of creation and the time that followed. And you know how they say that patterns repeat themselves. The same patterns that occurred in Eden, right, before and after that whole thing, are the same patterns that occur ever since in, in the life of every individual. You know, Freud said that we're trying to go back to the womb. That's, that's what always trying to go back to Eden. Whether we're aware of it or not, there's uh, something that we're unconsciously doing
0: so that has a lot to do with that. So the, the creation story in Genesis 1, you're saying that sort of maps onto the human life.
1: Right. Both of them. Because there are two stories there. Okay. In the first one, it gets to Shabbat. Right? It's... The Kiddush on Friday, it gets to Shabbat. On the second one, and that's where it's sort of chronologically, that was the plan. Mm. And then the second story is where man comes first and not last, and where there is no Shabbat. We haven't reached it yet. We're still waiting to reach that. Original Shabbat of Eden.
0: Okay, so there's a. So you read the two creation accounts in Genesis. The first one is this sort of plan for how to start and, what would you say, consummate or complete a universe in seven days, which you could take as like eras or epochs, I suppose. Right. And then the second one is a sort of. um, And this is how it actually. What it's actually like from the inside if you take the perspective of the human, which is created so in the first one the humans create on the sixth day so that it, the first one has a sort of cosmic perspective whereas the second one it starts with the creation of man right and therefore it's supposed to be uh what would you say like um existential in some way it's like from the it's about people by people about people right and it's the sort of inside view and that's that's a sort of frame narrative then so in a sense like the entire book from that point on takes place on day six of the original frame narrative that's right Wow. That's good stuff. Agreed. So how does this map onto like give give me give me some rough some rough patterns here how did, how does that map onto a human life? A single individual human life. Well,
1: it gives you a goal, first of all. You know, Eden, Eden is uh, is pleasure. It's not exactly onig. It's a bit of a, it's, it's a different kind of word. But Eden is um, it gives you something. It gives you a goal, something to shoot for, and it means that I, I don't know if that specific thing. You know, six days out of seven. Uh, you know, because. Uh, Like it says in Sefer Yetzirah, the seven represents the physical, you know, seven deserts, seven seas, seven continents, whatever, uh, you know, the the different seven days of creation. Um, I guess, well, first of all, first and foremost, Shabbat, physical, actual, human Shabbat, the Hebrew Sabbath, Hmm. which we do every week. If you're talking about the individual corresponding to those days of creation, we do it every week. We have six days. And then we sanctify the seventh day. The seventh day is called Me'ain Olam Haba. That's precisely what that is. It's a taste of the world to come. Why is that? Because Shabbat that we experience here is a taste of Shabbat that we are supposed to achieve.
0: Okay, so this is something that's interesting. The idea that, that every seventh day represents the seventh day of creation or that is the seventh epoch of... of right, more than
1: that. Seven every seven years we have... The Sabbath of the land, the Shemitah. every seven times seven years. On the fiftieth year, we have the Yovel, right? The fiftieth year, which is sanctified, and the uh, the Yovel corresponds with Sefirat Habina. That's the Yovel. That is the place, you know, Binah, the mother, the womb, right? That's what we're shooting for. Binah is. Uh, if we're all the counterpart, the feminine counterpart of God, you know, the then the mother, is who we want to be. In other words, during the week, the Hebrew man, Jewish man, lives through this seven-day thing all the time. And if you listen closely, during the Sefirat HaOmer, which is 49 days, and the fiftieth, um, and the fiftieth is sanctified, you could. Sort of see how the different svirot and the different situations in life, the, the different relationships, how they talk to one another, how they relate to one another. But this happens every week as well, and that's why each day has its own kavanot. Uh, you know, according to any, whether it's the Ari or other ones, each hour has its own kavanah. Each there, you know, each there, there are tons of things there that have to do with time. Kavanot mean like intentions. Kavanot meaning. Um, aligning your thoughts properly Mm -hmm. in order to reveal, to to, um, bring down certain revelations of God into the world. That's a kavanah. When you utter a certain prayer, when you make a certain move with your body, when you perform a certain mitzvah, there are different things that you need to consider in your mind, different names of God, different relationships between the Sphivot. You don't have to, obviously. It's the Kabbalists who do this. I don't do this, uh, usually. I do it with a few th- specific things. but uh, So people do that. Some people do it all day, every day, all their lives. Some people only have certain things that they, you know, and some people live out their lives without the kavanot. But even without the kavanah, like you said, intention, they repeat the seven, they repeat that, that cycle of seven.
0: So a guy could wake up on Sunday and sort of think, how how is this day going to be about... Separation of light and darkness for me.
1: How it would be, uh, or or the seven the seven lower sfirot, Sunday being Chesed. How could I,
0: you know, bring more kindness into the world, you know? What would you say as as practical questions for the next six? Well,
1: Gvura would be, where do I need to assert myself more, or? Where do I need to uh, inhibit myself? Where am I? Where am I letting my emotions get away or my actions get away? The gavura, you know, the driving force. Where do I need to cut back? Where do I need to add? Tif would me would tif eret would be how do I strengthen my physical form? What can I do today to strengthen my physical form? Netzach vahod, which are inseparable if you take it as the legs or the knees, you know, the thing that carries the individual you could ask yourself take those days as how do I conduct myself, just, you know, asking yourself these questions: am I conducting myself properly I suppose, or, or literally, am I walking right do I have good posture you know, even to that uh, to that extent, you can take it anyway really Yesud would be all about my sexual nature and my my masculinity, for me, because I'm a man, and Malchut would be uh, the feminine. In other words, how much... Am I giving enough power to my masculine tendencies? Am I giving enough power to my feminine tendencies? Because they both exist within me. So, I mean, those those are questions just right off the top of my head. But part of what Ramak says in the Tomer Dvorah, when he specifies exactly how everyday actions and thoughts correspond with these Sphilot, there's a lot more there. But if you want to frame it as questions, those are the ones that came to me. There are many others that could be asked in relation to this Sphilot, because there's so much depth.
0: Yeah, uh, every time I talk to you, I get uh, a better <laughs> sense of that. All right, Yanitan, one last question. Yes. What is your vision of a better Jerusalem?
1: A vision of a better Jerusalem. I've lived here my whole life. I moved here when I was two from the Chovot. And other than a few years in Tzfat, I've lived here all my life. My vision for a better Jerusalem would be one where, where there is no religion. Where, if to be practical, like seriously practical about it, I would want it to be governed by an outside sort of... I would want it to be a city of God. That belongs to no one. That has its own sovereignty. If you want it started by the UN until a different body of authority or government, you know, wants it, you know, or whatever, fine. But this city, this Zion, needs to belong to the people. And it's said in the prophets, uh, in the prophet who is it? Yeshayahu? I think it's Isaiah, who says that Yerushalayim will be given a new name by God. Shem chadash asher Adonai yikavenu the city of Zion will be given a new name. And there's just absolute endless rivers of blood flowing through this city for thousands of years. People constantly fighting over it, conquering it, liberating it, executing people in it, civil wars, temples destroyed, uh, mosques brought down to ashes. I mean, there's just, it's a city of God but there's been so much judgment and, and cruelty and, and misguided notions of the nature of God or what God wants from us, it's all in this place. Is, it sits on the junction of, you know, Europe, Asia, Africa. There's a lot of power here, and I think that practically speaking, it should be just like the Vatican. That's it. It should just be like the Vatican. At least until we can get ourselves together and work out our differences, my vision of a better might include that, but impractically speaking, you know, to get all artsy-fartsy on you, it's just a place where, where there is no more bloodshed, where, you know, I envision it as, as a time when Solomon, when Shlomo built the temple, he celebrated two weeks, not one, of Sukkot. There was one week of Sukkot, and then another week of Sukkot. And... When they dedicated that first temple, aside from all the animal slaughter, which I don't condone these days, (laughs) it was, it's just so magical, but it's not even magical. It was people who made it happen. It's not magic. It's not some deus ex machina. It's people who built it. Nations working together. He got the cedars, you know, from Lebanon and he got stone cutters from uh, Tzor. Solomon called in favors from different people. They built it together. And when that thing was stamping, and when, and when uh, King Herod redid it, it said that whoever didn't see the Temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. It was something spectacular. And lest we forget, it was a place where you could go and actually see things that defy nature, miracles, happening before your eyes. It's a place where God manifested with or without a temple forever and always, the fact that the western wall, the outer wall of the, you know, of the temple, exists still, uh, is, and is a testament to that. My vision for a better Jerusalem is one where... Kimitzion mitzion torah Adonai Yerushalayim, you know, from Zion, Torah will come, and from Yerushalayim, the word of God. That's what I want it to be, in a sense where everyone is aware of it, not, oh, some religious people, you know, some fanatics or some fundamentalists, or no, it's everyone acknowledging that this place is special, treating it that way, you know, it's a city of, it it needs to be a city of righteousness. People talk about a beacon of hope, a light in the darkness. This is it. This is what it's supposed to be it's supposed to be a light people talk about the jews being a light unto the nations it's not that's something we need to attain it's not something we are and it's that's done through rebuilding jerusalem and the fact that we're living here now walking talking prophecies you and i this is something that was prophesized many many years ago when we are actually doing it we're living here it's the land is giving us good feedback it's prospering you know the, the this kingdom, this state of Israel. And Yerushalayim needs to be an, a city for everybody with no religion, with no... You know, it needs to be, as, as the Patach Eliyar says, uh, he says, The higher crown is the crown of the king. And the... Yerushalayim needs to be that crown. Yerushalayim needs to be that place where God emanates to all from it, like freely, visibly, almost If you can touch it. It would be that tangible. That's what I want for Yerushalayim, and from there to the whole world. We're not going to keep, you know. Again, we have a we have we have a job to do. This is only humanity phase one. <laughs> Once we. That's why I said that I don't know about, you know, afterwards, because that's phase two. (laughs) But I do know that to end phase one, we need to get there together. And it's best to do it out of kindness and righteousness and positivity rather than hate, war, and, you know, cruelty. Yanatan? Pleasure. Thank always. you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so
0: much for having me. God bless. With thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike building Jerusalem.